great job, you guys. Um, I, uh, I just, you know, we have, we have such a great, like, team here. Our staff is awesome. If you haven't, you know, if you're new with us, I, as the lead pastor, my name is Jeff, but I'm the lead pastor, and it is, it, our team is so fun. And um, I, I just want to let you know, like, as we're looking at our team, and, and even thinking about junior high ministry, and, the, you know, junior high ministry is one wing of what we call student or youth ministry. And um, we do have, those of you who are wondering, we do have a high school ministry. It does meet on Tuesdays um, in our upper room, and they hang out, and there's, it's a great community led for the past couple months, really, by just a, a bunch of really great volunteers. And there they are. Um, and I want to tell you, um, as a, you know, they're meeting today after church, I, you know, so I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag before I get to talk to them, but we, uh, we've hired a, a high school pastor, and um, so for some of you, that's a giant deal. For those of you, like, yeah. For these 12 people, you guys, clearly, no big deal for you. It's all right, cool, just enjoy the rest of the service. But, uh, but that's a big deal for me in that it rounds out our team and allows us to move the church forward in all kinds of ways we haven't, you know, really been able to do. Our volunteers have done an unbelievable job, but having someone who's part of our team full-time, it just enables us to take some huge next steps together. And so, very excited about that. That's a guy who used to go to actually church, used to go to church here. This is his home community, grew up here, and um, he went away to... Uh, be a, a high school pastor at another church, and I called him and said, what are the chances? Would you ever want to? And I thought, no way, it's a long shot. And he said, yes. So I'm very excited about that. Um, very cool to kind of talk about our staff moving forward. Church is doing some great stuff. We started uh, Rooted and Life Groups this past week, and it was great to have everybody together. We had Life Groups sponsoring the event officially, meaning that they had pizza and nachos, and we had hundreds of people here kind of kicking off Rooted in Life Groups. And um, out in the, in the patio there, our little, our little atrium area out there, it is so pleasant. It is so nice. Um, you know, like kind of in, like the 9 o'clock service gets to experience that it's best. Afterwards, when you walk out there, sometimes it feels like, you know, really blazing hot. But at, in the afternoon, when the sun is right in those windows, it's like, it's a torture room. But it was so great. Everybody, it was just like, this is what a greenhouse feels like. It was just sweat dripping down. And can I have some more nachos? That just feels like great with the sweat dripping down my face. But everybody had a great time. We got stuff off and rolling. My mom is actually in the fall session of Rooted, so you can clap for that. I don't, I don't know. If you're in her group, then, you know, you remember there's a confidentiality thing when she says stuff about me, so <laughs> you know. Okay. Um, but the series we've been in has been so fun to talk. I've, I've had great conversations with a number of you guys. We're talking through the series, um, uh, the series called Neighborhood, and we're looking, at, we're looking at this question. I'm taking it really seriously. You know, what did Jesus mean? He said there's like two big things I'm about. One of them is loving God, and the other one is loving your neighbor as yourself. And we're wrestling with this idea of what exactly, I mean, how, what does it actually mean to love my neighbor? And so in the first week, Doug Fields, who's going to be back here next week, by the way, he talked about what does it look like to love the neighbors, not necessarily who are next door to my front door, but who are next door to my bedroom door, the people who live in my own house. What does it look like to live in sort of this neighborly kind of relationship with them? And then last week we talked about using the, the quintessential neighbor story in the Bible, the story of the Good Samaritan. We asked the question in a very real way, which is how far does my neighborliness need to go? I mean, like, where's the upper limit on reasonable loving of people that are not like me, that are way different than me? Where's the, how much can I, where can that stop? Ask that question. Wrestle with it in a big way. And I'm very, I'm very, very excited about what we're talking about today. In fact, as we were talking, um, as all four of the campuses were together this past week, uh, Mariners, Mariners Mission Viejo is one of four campuses. And um, this is what we refer to as the main campus. Uh, and so there's, there's a real big overflow campus in Irvine, but that's not a big deal. Uh, but there's, there's four campuses, and all of us are together for an all-staff meeting. And I just telling, I was talking about uh, some of the stuff going on, like, you know, Kenton Beastro is our senior pastor. He asked me to come talk about what's going on at Mission Viejo, and I was telling some of the stuff that's going on and some of the conversations we're having and some of the stuff that you guys are up to. And the whole, I mean, I had so many conversations with people from the other campuses going, tell me more about what's going on there. There's just great stuff happening. I'm super excited about it. And part of that is kind of what's being captured in this series. And so as we move into this week, I want to pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about what God's doing, and, um, and yeah, we'll kind of see what God's saying to us in, in his word. So let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, Jesus, as we gather, as we get together, um, you know, for some of us, it's our first time walking th into this weird room with this other wall and all kinds of stuff. There's that, that nervousness about being an outsider in a place uh, that looks like it's full of insiders. And Jesus, all of us have walked through a place in our own lives where we have felt unwanted or unloved. We have things that we've done that have made us feel that way. We have things that have been done to us that have left us feeling as though we're on the outside, that we are not wanted. You know, Jesus, you come to us. 
and you speak into us and you would dwell among us and say, I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. And that because, Father, we know the experience of having been left outside and left abandoned, we also know how then to move towards people who are in that same place now. Jesus, today, would we rethink the way that we see ourselves as outsiders? Would we rethink the way that we treat those people who would see themselves as outsiders and unwanted? Jesus, no matter where we might be, whether we're feeling that experience or we have felt it, that today, God, would you reveal yourself in powerful and real ways? And so, Jesus, we, um, we pause just to let you speak, that we would stop sort of speaking prayer, that we would just hear you in the words of your Holy Spirit. Would you just fill us? Would you do the work in our own hearts that we cannot do on our own? So for just a moment, we give to you just a few seconds to pause. Lord, we receive from you that you would fill us, that you give to us life that cannot be had anywhere else, that you give to us hope and wholeness and filling. So Jesus, would that be made evident to us in this place today? In your name, amen. Well, um, as we're going to be in a couple different places today in the Bible, we'll be in Romans 15, we'll be in Colossians 4, we'll be in 1 Peter 2, we'll take a little... You know, it's sort of a, a detour a little bit too into Luke 14. But if you just want to follow along in your outline, great. If you brought your Bible on, I would encourage you to highlight it and draw on it. And whatever it is you need to do, you know, to like capture whatever is going on, I would encourage you to do that. I also want to tell you this. When we talk today, uh, I'm going to give you some, this is one of those messages that is going to create more questions and conversation than answers. And I'm totally okay with that. So when you go to lunch or whatever with a bunch of people and you're like, I don't get it. That's, you're welcome. I'm just happy to tell you. That's kind of where I'm, I'm leaving you a little bit today on purpose. And hopefully there's some conversation that kind of stirs up in you and maybe even a little bit of wondering of what it might look like for you beyond what we talk about today. So just there's, a, there's your fair warning. Um, we are, we are, you know, we're back in where it's, it's fall. I guess it's today officially the first day of fall. Someone said that today. Is that right? It's officially fall today. So, you know, everything changed from yesterday to today, whatever that means. But as we're back in fall uh, and my kids are, you know, getting in school and all, you know, they're all that kind of stuff. And they're starting to emerge. My, my daughter is, uh, she's in second grade, and she has that, like, that, now you're starting to have that kind of, a little bit more when you go to lunch, you have that lunch table kind of drama. Like, where am I supposed to sit? And can I sit with those people? And can those people sit with me? And who am I supposed, you know, like, if I sit with these people, what does it mean? Now she's in second grade. She can't just go sitting next to a boy because all of a sudden there's a whole other narrative that the school writes about her sitting next to a boy. So it's now definitely there's girls' tables and, and there's boys' tables and all kinds of stuff that sort of, you know, they're trying to figure out a little bit. And, and you know, where you sit can, like, make or break your entire year. Like, who you met. Like, all of that's all of this sort of elevated drama around the lunch table. I was, uh, you maybe remember this, I was at, I was at, I took my daughter on like a little, do- little daddy date to Disneyland the other day, and we're walking around. And my favorite thing about Disneyland is probably just seeing who all showed up there. You know, like, wow, that's, I can't believe they did. And, you know, so we're there, and uh, we're walking around, and it was, it was awesome. She conquered the, the Matterhorn. It's kind of a big milestone for her, you know, seven years old, went on the Matterhorn. And, you know, it's one of those things, like, the build-up to it was way worse than the actual ride. And she's like, that was fun. I'd do that again. And, and what, do you want to go again? Not right now, but I'd do it again. You know, one of those. We're walking around. And I see, a, a, like, a junior high age girl walk around. She's wearing a shirt that says, you can't sit with us. She was by herself. But I don't know what that meant, but <laughs> sort of irony, I guess. But she's wearing a T-shirt that says, you can't sit with us. And all of us have had that experience of being like, oh, you're no, you can't sit with You're not one of us. Or maybe we were on the other side wearing a shirt, not literally. <laughs> maybe we weren't by ourselves saying, you can't sit with us. But we have that experience of saying, there's some of us who belong here and some of us who don't. And just to kind of capture it a little bit, now you can't say with us comes to the movie like Mean Girls. That was kind of the, the, and she was wonderfully identifying herself. Mean is what that shirt said. But I want to give you, those of you guys who didn't see that, another taste of what this looks like from um, a show about 10 years ago called Friends. Check this out.
<laughs> I gave you my snack pack. See, he pretend he don't even hear me. I, I think everybody's pretending they don't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like that kind of summed it up a little bit for that drama, if you can't remember what it was like. But the church itself has a dilemma. The, pe- the church being the people who follow Jesus have a dilemma. Because how do people who align themselves with Jesus and with the people who follow Jesus, how do they live in a world which doesn't necessarily agree with what they're all about? I mean, what are we supposed to do? How do we live in a world which is so different than us, and yet we're also in the world? How do we do this? Now, traditionally, the church has kind of found kind of an isolationist mentality, meaning we're not sure what we'll be cordial with the rest of the world, but we'll have our own lunch table, and we'll sit there, and we'll gather up, and what we'll do is we want to make sure we have kind of an uncontaminated version of whatever else is out there for us. And if anybody wants to come on over, well, sure, here's a little Purell for your hands and put it all up and then come jo- you can come join us. But we're not sure about you because you're not like us. At least that's the message that the church has often been reputed to have given to the world. Um, at, my, at my kid's school, there's a course. We didn't have this growing up. Uh, but maybe, maybe, you know, you can relate to this. They have the, you know, the, the, the peanut-free table. Some schools I know are entirely like you can't, you can't walk a peanut within... 30 mile radius of the school, like every, you know, it's like there's this crazy, but, but at my kid's school, there's a peanut allergy table. So like, you know, there's just like this, if you have a peanut allergy, you sit at that table and anybody else who sits there has no peanut, anything in their, you know, in their lunch. And my, uh, my daughter's favorite thing in the world is, and by the way, I don't know what that's like for a kid who has to like, you know, to just sit there, like all their friends are over wherever else and that you don't know whether it's like a peanut butter and jelly fest everywhere else. And they're just like, ha this is the most delicious thing in the world. It's Wonder Bread. It's white bread, too. It's totally not nutritious. It's the best. You know, I don't know what they're pointing at other kids, whatever. But, but there's, that, there's a little bit of this island here. And my daughter, who is now seven, she was, I think, in kindergarten. Maybe it was last year. Kindergarten, I think, though. She goes, her favorite thing in the world, peanut butter. Like peanut butter, like Reese's, the Reese's cups are her favorite candy, everything, all that stuff. Some of you just went, mm, yeah, okay. But she's, she's all about peanut butter. And her favorite thing in her lunch, the only thing she would eat would be the, like the peanut butter crackers, the pre-wrapped peanut butter crackers, she's just like all over. That's the only thing she eats sometimes. Like we have a whole nutritious lunch and that's the only thing that's eaten, you know? And um, one day she goes, Dad, can you not put the peanut like crackers in my lunch? And I go, well, what will, you'll starve. What else will you, what will you eat, you know? And she goes, well, I don't want them. And I go, why? She goes, because my friend so-and-so has to sit at the peanut free table and I want to sit with her. Awesome. I mean, I was like, of course. Just bring that entire lunch back home. I know none of it will even be touched. But you just, I was like, this is so, she's, she's on to something there. That I think has kind of been lost a little bit. That the church would say, you know, we want to be cordial, like I said, with the rest of the world who sits at these other places. But we're not too sure how to really kind of engage. And the early church wrestled with the same stuff. I mean, the early church is full of a bunch of people from all different kinds of backgrounds. You have, you know, this, this guy who's this Jewish Messiah who everybody's saying is the Lord of everything and everyone over the whole world. So does that mean only Jewish people? Or how do the non-Jewish people encounter this guy, this Messiah person? And who's, who gets to be included and what table do we sit at? It's literally the question they're asking. 
Here's what it says. This is throughout the New Testament. Uh, this is Romans 15. says this. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Now, there is this tendency in the early church, an orientation, if you will, toward those who are weak, which is vastly different than the world that we live in. That the church saw themselves in some way or another, the people who belong to God, were like, we're about the people who are generally excluded, who are the outsider. We've got to figure out how to live in such a way to build them up, not so much us. We don't use other people to build ourselves up. Whatever we've been given is for the benefit of other people. It's kind of the way that sort of looked. I love the way that the, um, the message paraphrase of the Bible says this, that this strength is for service, not for status. And last week we asked the question, so who is my neighbor? Like who, get, who really does get to benefit from all of whatever I am? Who gets to benefit from that? Are they people that are a lot like me, or are they people that are way different than I am? Who's my neighbor? Verse 3 says this. For even Christ did not please himself. On your outline I have too, that he endured the insults of those who had fallen on you. Like, there's this whole idea of Jesus, the leader of this group of people, who is, and the group being so vastly different than any other group in the Roman world, where you have then these people of all kinds of different social strata, of different genders, or this, this community of mutual love and respect, who then also have as their orientation toward outsiders, one that says, we want to serve you. And their leader, the guy they call Lord and Savior, which, by the way, is a title given to Caesar. They call their guy, Jesus, the Lord and Savior. And he, his model is that he went and died and for the people and served everybody else. That's their model. This is a bizarre kind of group of people. It's so different than the rest of the world. And they look at Jesus and they go, Can you, is, this, is, this real, is this leader serious? Is this how we really do this? But the orientation of the early church was always towards those who were on the outside, the neighbors, those who were different. And generally people adopt sort of the you can't sit with us mentality as part of the way in which, you know, when we, when we default, and the world kind of goes, you can't sit with us. And yet there's this, throughout the early church, this wrestling with and this argument about, and how do we move toward people that are so vastly different than we are? can't sit with us. Jesus uses this model over and over again throughout the, the, his ministry and life. He talks about this table in which people that are not like you, meaning it's his audience, he goes, they're not like the people you expect. Those people are going to be at the table sitting with you. Literally, he uses this table analogy. I want to show you. It's not on your outline, but I wanted to just show it to you. This is in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is, he gets invited to go to a Pharisee's house for dinner. A Pharisee is a religious leader who's a, if you ask anybody who's the most righteous person around, they would say the Pharisees are the most righteous people. They follow every rule. They got extra rules on top of rules to make sure they don't break any rules. They got so many rules. And Jesus is going to have dinner at this guy's house. And all the people that are invited there are trying to clamor to figure out who gets to kind of sit together and where, who gets the seat of honor and all this kind of stuff. And then he says this to them as they're all worrying about it. Like, what are we supposed to do? He says this to them in Luke 14. He says this. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back so you'll be repaid. Now, in other words, what he's saying is you can imagine in your mind how you could benefit from someone who you could invite, who would pay you back. People that have good reputations, who make you look good, who when they sit at your table, everybody goes, wow, they're kind of important people. He says, instead, when you give a, blank, a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Now what he says is, and you have to understand what that means. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those are people in the ancient world who would have been believed to have been cursed. In other words, there would have been something about their family or their tradition, whatever else it might have been, that had led them to this point where they suffered because of something else. Either they did or their parents did or their parents' parents did. In other words, to have those people at your table meant that you kind of got their, whatever is on them that kind of got them kind of in their situation is now it's upon you. And Jesus says, invite these people not so that they can be blessed, not so that you make them feel good, but so that you will be blessed. 
There's something about the way Jesus operated and the early church as well that had this leaning toward people who would otherwise be outsiders that nobody else wanted. A Christian theologian and you know, pastor, G.K. Chesterton, says this. It's on your outline. I'll put it on the screen too. He says this. The church is the only organization that exists solely for the benefit of non-members. The church is the only organization or institution that exists for the benefit of non-members. In other words, the church has this sort of purpose in the world, which is not just to sort of hide everybody else out from it, but in, order, but in other words, it's, the church is designed to make the world different, better. That somehow about what we're about isn't simply hiding out, but it's about this other kind of living in the world. And the early church wrestled with this notion a lot. So do we. Colossians 4, this is Paul's wrapping up his letter to the church in Colossae, and he says this. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Now you can see as Paul, he's finishing up all this stuff about what it means to be a life in a community that follows Jesus, who is greater than everything else. He is above all things. This is the very beginning of his letter. And then he gets this very end where he's wrapping stuff up. And he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, people that are different than you. The outsiders matter, and there's a clear deference to them. How are we in the world with people who are outsiders? He continues on. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, the question you should be asking in your head right now, and many of you already are, which is, what does it then mean to make the most of every opportunity with the outsider? Now, again, by the way, if you're new with us, this is, I'm just, this is us as a church, and kind of give a sense about who we are. Like, just get an idea of kind of what is, our, what is Mariner's Church Mission Viejo all about. But the question is, what does it look like then? How do we make the most of every opportunity toward outsiders? What does that look like? Well, I think then there's this, there's this, there's this kind of idea here. There's people on the outside of whatever us is, the church. And Paul, the author here, is saying, you got to figure out how to live among those people to the outsiders in a very unique way. And we as a church have this kind of, how, do, how are we supposed to do that? Because our natural inclination is to kind of just go, this is our seat and we sit here. And you can come over if you're kind of like us, but we're not sure what to do with everybody else. That's the natural tendency of the church. I want to give you just a very simple, well, I should say this way. You cannot talk a, a whole series called Neighbor Good without at least for one moment highlighting the world's greatest neighbor, Mr. Rogers. Anybody just grow, either grow up with Mr. Rogers or your kids grow up with Mr. Rogers or, you know, some of you don't know Mr. Rogers is you're just, you just so, your, your soul is incomplete. I'm just telling you right now. All of my kids, up until they took it off the air, um, we had to, it took a little while to try and find it, but as soon as they took it off the air, we had to re-sort of discover it. We even bought some of the DVDs before, they started, before we started streaming it. But all my kids, we put them to bed with Mr. Rogers up until they're like their fourth, fourth year of life because it was, <laughs> he put everybody to sleep. Uh, just want to say. But he has this pace and this tone and the way he talked to people, gosh, it was unbelievable. And he would say, he would say over and over again, he would just, he, just the way he would dignify every single human being he, con he contacted was so beautiful. In 1997, he won a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmys. And I, I want to show you his speech in a moment, his, his acceptance speech. And you'll recognize some of the people in the audience with their giant hair and all kinds of, you know, it's a long time ago. But you, I want you to just get a sense Here's a person who is so incredibly un-Hollywood. He talks slowly. He's like, I mean, he's not unhandsome, but he's not like super attractive. I mean, he's not like Mr. Buff handsome. Dude. He's like a regular guy. And he's got this overwhelming sense of gentleness and humility. And I want you to watch the way all these narcissistic sort of Hollywood people look at him and go, somehow or another, he's connecting with their soul on a very, very, very intimate level. So check out this video. Watch the most. Watch Hollywood react to Mr. Rogers right here. Oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. So many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here. Some are far away. Some are even in heaven. 
All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. 10 seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. Special thanks to my family and friends and to my coworkers in public broadcasting, family communications, and this academy for encouraging me allowing me all these years to be your neighbor. Mm. May God be with you. That is a perfect example of a person making the most of every opportunity, full of grace, seasoned with salt. Mr. Rogers is a guy who has a, a Master's of Divinity. That's a seminary degree. He went on to be, he was going to go be a pastor until he found that he could do some work with this television show to help kids and their families. And there he is, this guy who, in the midst of all of this world, who is so, everybody there worried about themselves, worried about everything, hopefully their hair looks good and whatever dress they're wearing or whatever else, all that stuff. And he just goes, would you take a moment to acknowledge people who helped you get to where you are? And he dignified every single human being in that space. And then he was so gracious and humble. Now, as I watch that acceptance speech, I actually get the sense of like, what, what does it look like for the whole church to kind of live like that? Mr. Rogers in the heart of Hollywood, among all these people who are so over self-focused, he gets them for a split second, to, for 10 seconds, to think about the people that helped them. And you can see a couple of the reactions. People are shocked, like, I can't believe that was that awesome. What does it look like for the church to sort of live that out? The, the, the asking of that question really is a, is a the, the, like, big word for that is the word ecclesiology. What is the church supposed to do? What are, what are we all about? Not the church, the building, the church, the people. What are we supposed to do? What does it look like to make the most of every opportunity to be full of grace and to be seasoned with salt in the world? What does it mean to be the church? I'll give you three examples. There's probably a billion examples. These are the ones that I feel like we might connect with the most. The default position for the church for a long time, the church particularly in the past hundred years in America, has been this sort of, uh, I would say, a, a fortress position. And a fortress is like this. We have everything that you need if you come to us. We have everything that you need. But before you come in to be a part of this little group of people, we're going to need to make sure that you kind of can at least be a little bit like us. We don't want to up, you know, we don't want to like tip the boat or we don't want to get anybody too crazy here. And if you can, go ahead and we can get, make sure you go through the proper TSA screening and, you know, you, everyone can make sure that you don't have, your, you know, nothing in your shoes. Then you can, then we'll lower the drawbridge and you can come in. If you can take the things that are really serious in your life, the things that are like big regrets, shameful stuff in your life, you could bury those pretty deep down and fake like everything's kind of together. You're welcome to be with us. That's a, that's a default model for the church. And it, it has as its value, the reason why people default to that is because it feels pretty safe. The world is out there doing whatever's happening in the world, and then we get to be in a place then in the, in the fortress where we go, at least it's not affecting us. And anybody who comes in here, we're safe. That's probably the most, you see this a lot. There's a lot of people who would say, I just want a church that kind of have a lot of sanitized people that are a lot like me. And then there's this, there's this, uh, there's this other, this, or the, there's this other model, which I think is probably more uh, like akin to what I would say we would have on a Sunday service here. It's a little more like this. And the reason, the way I got this is I was at a conference, and the guy asked the most bizarre question. The speaker asked the most bizarre, like, who would know the answer to this question? He goes, "Hey, do you guys know how they ranch cattle in Australia? <laughs> who doesn't? 
you know, that's, I'm like, oh, I have no idea about what he's about to say. He goes, the way they ranch cattle in Australia is he goes, they, they're, they're in this incredibly hot desert in Australia, and it's, they can't, it's too hard to even put up fences because of all of the terrain and everything else. So he goes, the way that they ranch cattle in Australia, and I don't, he could be lying, I don't even know if this is true, but the analogy works, so just stay with me. And he goes, the way, we ranch, the way they ranch cattle in Australia is that they just have water. And I go, what? He goes, they put water in these big cisterns, and then the, the cattle don't go too far from it or else they die. In other words, what he's saying is there's an oasis in the desert, and the idea then for this kind of model is everybody who's thirsty, come and drink. That the emphasis here isn't on if you're kind of like us. The emphasis is on, are you thirsty? If you are, come and drink. You see this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, where Isaiah says to, you know, God says to Isaiah, all who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink from the fountain. That kind of idea. Now, that's pretty good. In fact, I would say that's, that's how I would, like I said before, I feel like that's how I want our Sunday services to feel like. Hey, if you're thirsty, come. We're not looking for a pre-qualification or anything else like that. It's just if you want to come and hear about Jesus and you're thirsty, come. But I think there's another model for me as, as I think about our own church, about this community of people. Remember, the church isn't the building. The church is the people who belong to Jesus. As I think about our own church, I think about it in a slightly different model than those two things. And maybe you experience that. And for some of you, that might be uncomfortable, what I'm going to share with you. I think of our church like this. Can you show that picture? That. Leave that up there for a little bit. This is a hydration table. Those of you guys ever run a, a race, like a marathon or a 10K or a 5K or something like that, or whatever it might be, every couple of miles, every mile or so, they have a table with just full of water like this. Now keep this picture up here for a second. I want you to look at it for a little while. What this is, is this is people who take water to where people are their thirstiest. And they say, would you like some water? And the people run by and they pick the water up and they pour it on themselves and they drink it. And they just throw it on the ground. And the people who offer the water are the same people who clean it up. Those people who are running this incredibly difficult race are desperate for hydration. They're running out of energy. They're running out of water. And every so often there's a hydration table where they're at their thirstiest where they can get water. The church is about taking water to where the people are the thirstiest church is about taking water to people who are the thirstiest. Jesus describes himself as a well of living water. Now the question is, what is it, where, where are people thirsty? I told this at the beginning, like I said, we launched Rooted and, and Life Groups this past week for the fall session. And I, uh, I told the, everybody that was there, I said, you know that there's 25% of people in America say, a recent survey says, have no, they, they have no person in their life with whom they can be totally honest. They have no confidant. They have no one with whom they can say, this is what's really going on and how I really feel, which means they live all of their life in a shallowness of relationships without being able to talk to anybody. We live in a world where people have 7,000 friends on Facebook but can't talk to people about what's really going on in their life. We live in a world where images managed to the degree that you can, only the best pictures get shown out on, like on Facebook, whatever they get posted on Facebook. Only the best stories, only the most manicured sentences make it to the public realm so that everybody can see. And we go, this is us, this is me. The truth is that what people are most thirsty for in the world is meaningful relationships. People are dying for meaningful relationships. We have a sense in our own experience, our own world, where people go, I really want meaningful relationships, but I'm afraid to show people who I really am because they might further reject me. People are dying of thirst for that stuff. As I was, um, you know, as I was talking about Mr. Rogers, you know, there's this is a guy who, I, you know, like I said, I put all my kids to sleep. I watched Mr. Rogers as a kid. My own kids watched Mr. Rogers. And I remember the way he always, he, he talked to people in the most, the most dignifying way. And he's, I remember one time we're watching the show and he's, uh, he's talking to a, a father and son. The father is a construction worker and his son's kind of being an apprentice and learning how to draw, drive all these, you know, big vehicles and stuff like that. And you could tell, this is the most interesting dynamic. Mr. Rogers says to the dad, he says, and you could tell the dad may not have said this to the son by the son's reaction. He goes, how proud you must be to have raised such a son like this who can do all these things and be with you. And you could tell the dad was like, uh, yep, I say that all the time to him. Like, that's what we just, we say that all the time. And the son was like, like, you could tell there's a moment that Mr. Rogers kind of parented in them, like right there in that moment. 
And the way he would always end all of his interviews, whoever, whoever came to visit him, whether it was the mailman, Mr. McFeely, or he's talking to whoever else, whoever would show up at his, you know, guys know Mr. McFeely, speedy delivery, yeah, okay. But whoever would show up at his house, or wherever he went to have a conversation with someone who was showing how they make crayons, or how they harvest mushrooms, or whatever else it was that he was showing these people, he'd always end, no matter what they did, with this statement. It's always good to be together. It's something you probably have heard me say. I got it from him. If you've talked to me at the door, probably you've heard me say, it's good to be together, or it's always good to be together. People are dying for someone to say to them, it is good to be together. My, uh, my buddies, they're um, part of a different church community, and they were telling me about this thing they're doing. They're, they're all having a conversation about their marriages, and they're, they're like, what if we, just, it's just guys. I'm like, what if, we, what if we went through a marriage book together? And they're going through a book um, by a guy named Tim Keller who's at a church in Manhattan, Redeemer Church in Manhattan in, in, uh, in New York. And, um, and so they're, they're going through this book and they invite a bunch of their neighbors who are also guys who are you know, married but aren't, they're not necessarily, they don't follow Jesus, they're not really sure about Jesus, whatever, they're not church people, they don't, not, they don't believe. He just goes, do they invite them to come be a part of the conversation? And what they find out is, these guys find out, who are not yet totally interested in Jesus at all, but what they say to my friends who are having this conversation about their marriages, they say, there is no place in the world that I can have these conversations. Nobody else is talking about their marriage. I don't, worry, I don't know where else to go, but I'm real. the way you guys talk about stuff is different than everybody else talks about it, and you, let, you allow me to be a part of it. It's a person who's thirsty for meaningful relationships. You can see why there's this emphasis that we have on us being in our community. You know, at Labor Day, we talked about having neighbor day moments. I had people emailing me saying, do you have any other ideas? I tried a couple things that you tried. Are there any other ideas? People are trying, starting to begin to see this, this value. And here's the story. I, I mentioned this before. The three-phase process of people hosting things in their neighborhoods went like this. I'm really nervous. And I made all of our staff do it, by the way. I was like, you guys have to do this. And they were like, are we really sure we want Jeff as our lead pastor? Is there still a room to have? He's only been here six months. Is there a way we could sort of go back? But after they get over that initial shock and realize how hard they go to their neighbors and say, we're just getting a bunch of people together. That's it. They all said it was hard to do that. The second thing they found out is everybody who was there was waiting for that to happen and didn't know how to get it started. And the third thing they found is everybody said when they were there, when are we doing the next one? So as a staff, we went around talking about the ideas we were going to have. And I told this, as like I said, as all of our staff was together, at, you know, this past week, all of the, the four campuses had our, were at, together at, at uh, Irvine. And um, I'm telling the story about what's going on here. And I said, you know, I told this, by the way, I told this to this person because you're going to go, wow, you are so mean. Bear with me. Hear the whole story, then come back. Okay? But uh, Christina Swanson, who, um, she's awesome. She does all of like the, you know, the, she does like the songs with the kids and then she does dancing and the whole thing with the kids. She works at our children's ministry. She's awesome. And so I said, what are you, we're going around talking about ideas. Some people are like, I'm having a barbecue, and some people are showing movies, some people are having an ice cream social, whatever. And she says, I got this idea, and I have to tell you. Now, I'm going to tell you the internal dialogue, and you're going to think you are a mean person, and I might be. This might be true. But she goes, what we're going to do is we're going to bundle up, and I wrote this in really briefly in our compass a couple weeks ago, but, you know, we're going to bundle up little um, sort of bags or buckets of colored chalk, and we're going to give it to our neighborhood and tell people we're going to have a, a chalk art expo. And I was like... Awesome. Like I, I, I was like, that is going to be so fun. And I just did not know how to like, I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, yeah. And then we'll, people will draw art on their driveways and stuff. And I was like, sure they will. And we'll all have a learning experience afterwards about not every idea is a good one. I mean, it's just in my head. This is all my head. <laughs> she puts together with her kids 25 buckets of colored chalk, delivers it to her neighborhood. 24 of 25 people participated in the Chalk Art Expo. <laughs> she goes, there are like, there's a couple old folks that are, have their knee pads on, and they're down on the ground, like drawing these things. She said there was a lady who's in her 80s who's in this wheelchair who has like her, her assistant helping her, or like assisted living deal helping her. And she's having, they, by the way, at the end of their Chalk Art Festival on the driveway, the, the Swansons, had, Swansons had everybody over at their house to have root beer floats and hang out. And this lady was like rolled over in her, literally rolled over in her wheelchair and was like, I haven't had a root beer float since I was eight years old. This is the greatest. I love this so much. And I'm like, chalk art? <laughs> really? There is something about people. 
amid all of the ways in which we're connected like never before in our lives, that they still long for the personal connection with other people. People are thirsty. People are dying of thirst. Now, we're not a social action club. This isn't like my, my father-in-law's a member of, a, what's it called, the Rotary Club, where they're trying to end polio. That's all great. That's way to go, Bob, my father-in-law. Way to go. That's all great. We're about something even greater than that. It isn't just that we would do all these great things. It's that we would sort of introduce people in various clever, thoughtful, making the most of every opportunity kind of ways to introduce people to Jesus. Now, you can begin conversations with people. You're like, there's a thirsty world out there. And you can lead with, hey, how's it going? I want to introduce you to the Lord who gives unto you the water of everlasting life or whatever. You could try that model. Or you could just be a normal person and begin to start recognizing that other people are thirsty. And begin by saying that the way in which God came to us wasn't, as a, wasn't at a distance saying, you guys figure it all out, then come on over with me. What he said is he walked among us. The, the Greek word, the way that described the way Jesus lived among us is the word that he made his own tent among us, that he lived among us. And he said, walk with me. How refreshing it might be for people that you know to simply say to them the words. It's just good to be together. When they have heard over and over and over again, it, maybe it's not so good that we're together. Maybe there have been messages in their life that have been given to them by people who are supposed to love them, who just simply can't get out the words, it's good to be together. What would it look like for us to say to people who are dying of thirst, it's good to be together. I love the way Peter does this. He switches the analogy around a little bit in his letter, his first letter. He says it like this. It's in 1 Peter 2. Verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. The other translation of this has aliens and temporary residents. In other words, what he's saying is, not that there is outsiders to us. Well, that's true. He's saying, you ought to live, your, you ought to consider yourselves as outsiders. Know the feeling of being an outsider. Remember what that's like. You are foreigners. You are aliens and temporary residents. And he says this, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, the, the whole idea of what does it mean to live good lives is a really interesting conversation. Because the default position, again, is live good lives, live such good lives that we find our own table over here and people will see how our table functions and want to be a part of it. Well, that's sort of true. But what Peter's saying is not live good lives separated to, from or adjacent to the pagans, as is his word. He says, live such good lives among them. That whatever it is that we're doing isn't something that we say, look how good we are over here, not with you guys, the rest of the world. That what the church is designed to do is say, we're a part of what's happening in this world, and there is good that is being produced by us for you, benefits of the non-members. What does it look like for us to live life in a thirsty world where people need relationships up close? I know some of you are in a place where you have that experience of, I've, I've burned some bridges, some bridges have been burned. I am so thirsty for relationship. You know, Jesus came among us not simply to call us to sort of follow a set of precepts, to follow a sort of set of beliefs, but to walk with him. It turns out that God in Jesus is relational because our deepest soul need is actually at a relational level. Verse 16 says this. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, here's what's, just really quickly. Peter, which is all, Paul also says the same thing. He says, you know, you have total freedom in Jesus. You can do whatever you want. Not everything you want to do would be good for you. So he says, you know, let's kind of contain all that freedom. But more than anything, don't use your freedom and then cover it all up to try. Don't cover up sinful desire. No, no, no. Show proper respect. So submit to God. Show proper respect to everyone. Let me just tell you that the word respect, some translations have the word honor. Show honor to everyone. 
And the, the way it literally translates is like this. Prize everyone. Hold everyone in such a high degree that you prize the relationships around you. He doesn't simply say prize the people that are kind of like you. Don't prize the people that are just, you know, they're all kind of the same as you. No, 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 prize everyone. Hold them in such high esteem. The word honor actually means, like, give weight. But they have weight among you. Prize them. Hold them valuable among you. Now, this is an interesting sort of idea. I wonder for me, if those of you who are like me, I'll just speak for myself, but some of you are like me. You have, you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And I wonder how many times in my own life have I, in, a, in an attempt to be funny or ironic or whatever else it might be, have created a distance with someone because I wanted to elevate myself over them and sarcasm won the day and they got a little less prized around me. What would it look like to prize other, everyone else around you? What does that really look like? What does that even mean to hold them with such high esteem? And the way Peter writes, he says this, show proper, show proper respect to everyone. He starts with the community of the church. He says, love the family of believers. That's people who belong to Jesus. And then he says, fear God. And then he says, honor the emperor. The emperor is a person, Caesar, who is the, panic, the, the picture of all things that are opposed to God. Caesar, when he's born, there's an announcement that goes out. It's called a gospel, funny enough. When a Caesar is born and that gospel then says, unto us the Lord and Savior is born. Sound familiar? Jesus and, the, Jesus and Caesar are diametrically opposed. And yet what Peter says is, honor the emperor. This is, you can see the dilemma the church has. How are we supposed to do this? How do we live among the, the world where we fear God and we, you know, we love each other and we then honor the emperor? How are we supposed to do this? I think when you think about people in the world, we have to ask the question, Who's thirsty? Who's thirsty? And there's lots of different ways we talk about this, lots of different ways this comes about. How do we develop, how do we form into people the relationships that they actually matter, that they're a part of our lives, that is significant to us? Now, as we think about stuff, you can see why the emphasis on, on us being in our neighborhoods is a real passion for me. I mean, this is a really big deal for us. If we're really going to be kind of this hydration table, we're taking water where people are thirsty. What does that look like? Let me give you a sense just really quickly as we're coming up on, this will be, and this will challenge some of you guys and I encourage you to talk about it, think about it, so here you go. We're coming up on Halloween. Halloween, now I realize Halloween is a, is a holiday that is established and built on, you know, all kinds of like, there's an evil heritage there and I realize that what I'm going to say now, you have to just bear with me for a second. Some of you guys have a history with that and it's like, there's just no way you can even speak the words, you're, you know, whatever it is, that, I get it. But here's what I think some of the church has a reputation of doing. Let me just give you a sense of, the, now this is not all of us, but this is some of the church reputation, which is this. There is this day where people go around and have a party or whatever what they do where they dress up in costumes and exchange candy. And we call that Halloween. Get that. What tends to happen sometimes, just for example, with Christians occasionally, is what they'll do is they'll say, we don't believe in and participate in that kind of thing, so what we're going to do is have something different. We're going to have a costume party where we dress up and give each other candy, but it's not called Halloween. And to the rest of the world, they're like, well, that's just bizarre. Like, we're not over it. We're actually, you know, how, how, how do we make that? If they were to ask them, well, you're, what separates your party from ours? Well, we, it's a harvest. It's a, we, there's harvest and there's, we have a pumpkin, but we don't carve it or whatever it is. I mean, it's like. There is some level of bizarre Christian behavior that we kind of have adopted sometimes as a church. Now, what I'm saying is, again, hear me out. If you do not want to participate in and you know, God has given, don't, Halloween, I don't want to participate in it. Well, that's, that's totally great. Do that. But don't then host an alternative thing that's exactly the same and call it something different. You see the dilemma the church is in? Like, don't, don't mock what the world is doing with a Christian version of the same thing. I think we have to think differently about what it looks like to be in the world. I think we have to think a little bit differently about what this might look like because people are so thirsty. People are thirsty. So back to that question. Who's thirsty in your life? Is it a neighbor who's dying for a relationship? 
Is it a, a fellow student, a coworker? Is it a boss? Is it someone else who you recognize can't even sit at your table because they're too afraid to even ask you? Is there someone who's burned bridges, like I said before, in your past where you go, that the most redeeming thing you could say to them in their whole life could possibly be these words, it's so good to be together. It's good to be together. I prize that you are a human being. It's good to be together. Who is it in your life that you go, this is a person who has been told that, who has believed that, that that's not true? Who is it that believe that they're not welcome, that they can't be together? Who let me hear, it's good to be together. And some of you are like, well, there's a lot of people around me and I don't, I don't really think it's good to be together with them, so I'm not going to lie, so I won't do that. Okay, I'm telling you right now, fake it. Let God just show up in that space, okay? Fake it. It's, it's good to be together. Do whatever you got to do to say it. <laughs> but people are dying for people to say to them and believe, honestly, it's good to be together. Find your way toward it. And then the other, the other question as a part of this is, where are you thirsty? We say often this is a group of people who don't have everything figured out. Probably you've heard us say that if you've been here with us before. That means some of us at different times in our lives have varying degrees of thirst. Some of you wandered in here going, I'm just so, th- the world is leaving me so dehydrated. I'm so empty. I'm looking for relationships. I'm looking for something significant. I'm looking for God to do something in my life that nothing else can do. Where are you thirsty? Maybe it's been a long drought for you. Maybe you've been faking like everything's been wonderful. Maybe you just need to receive today. Like I said, Jesus refers to himself as the sort of wellspring of living water, eternal life. Whatever that might be that you would connect with him, but would it be modeled by the people in this room who understand what it's like to be filled up, to no longer be thirsty or to thirst less. Would you, would you pray with me? And then the band's going to help us respond together. Lord, um, we have lived and know the feeling of and have walked through the pain of deep thirst. Jesus, we have had the experience of knowing what it feels like to long for meaningful and deep and powerful relationships. Some of us wandered into today hoping that there would be some glimmer of connection, of relationship. Some of us come to church and run out as fast as we can because we're afraid people might recognize us because they know a little bit of our own story and our past. Others of us come into today, Jesus, feeling fully satiated, feeling full, no longer feeling the, the pangs of thirst. So, Father, would you bring to mind those people around us who are desperately thirsty, who need to hear the words, the same words that you say to us, it's good to be together. Father, where is it in our own life that we feel this sense of longing of incompleteness where we know that there is nothing else that can satisfy except a relational God who comes and walks among us and calls us to him? Jesus, we just received that call to you. Would you give to us a new freshness of life and wholeness? Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we respond today. Amen.